Well, it's great to be with you today. Um, so I want to uh, begin with a cliche. Is that okay? If I just use a cliche? Uh, this is one that uh, you probably have heard somewhere, but uh, it is this, that nothing fails like success. Nothing fails like success. And so you might be wondering if you haven't heard that before, like what does that mean? Well, part of what it means is this, that the things that led to our success in the past might not lead to success in the future. They might actually lead us into failure. Um, but another version of this is, is something that we call hubris. And there's a slide that's going to come up on the screen. It's kind of a, a cute little drawing. And uh, basically this is that when we are successful, if we become amazingly successful, it can lead to what we call hubris, uh, where we start to feel like we're bulletproof, like I can do anything and I don't need anybody to tell me different because look at who I am and look at what I've accomplished. That's what hubris is, and it's derived directly. It's a transliteration of a Greek word, hubris, um, and it means literally presumption against the gods. Um, hubris is an uh, excessive pride, excessive uh, arrogance, excessive self-confidence, like I got this, and it can lead us to forget that we in ourselves, folks, we are not self-sufficient. There are limits. You know when you hear people, motivational speakers, and they go, you can accomplish all of your dreams. If you can, you know, if you can conceive it, you can achieve it. You can do anything. Well, that sounds great, but we can't just jump off a cliff and fly by flapping our arms. We can't just do anything, and there are limits to what we can do, even if we've been amazingly successful. So we need to watch out about hubris, and we do see hubris in the Bible, like King Pharaoh of Egypt, you know, when he resisted Moses. Uh, there's King Uzziah of the southern kingdom of Judah when he was amazingly successful, and God helped him, and yet it went to his head. Like, look at me. Um, so there's a cute little children's book, and uh, I've not read this, but I read a summary of it. And it's called, I Want to Do It By Myself, A Little Princess Story. That's the name of the book. And it's about this little princess. She wants to go camping, and everybody's worried for her. And they, so they say, well, let us help you. Let us, let us help you. Let us come with you. And she says, no, I do it myself. And so she decides to go camping. Once she gets there, she realizes that she's forgotten a few things. But lo and behold... Uh, as she's out there, things just begin to magically appear. All the things that she had forgotten that she needs. And little did she know that people actually did end up helping her um, without her knowing it. And so the truth is, again, none of us is completely self-reliant or self-sufficient. We all need the help, uh, the encouragement, and the guidance of other people. But we especially, Christians, we know this. We need the help, the encouragement, and the guidance of our God. And there's times we really know that, and there's times when we forget that. So how do we get that help from God? Here's the answer. Well, you can read your Bible, but you must pray. And we find in the Bible a record of how people came before God in prayer when they needed help. And so 
I told you last week that I was going to start a series of messages on our new core values. Our church board just approved seven, what we call seven core values. And, uh, you know, whenever I hear people talk about core values, I tend to roll my eyes like, okay, right, whatever. It's all on paper. It doesn't mean anything. I want to tell you that personally I'm living into these core values. I want to, uh, Trent and some others are going to share uh, in these messages. But the core value I want to talk to you about today is what I call spirit-guided decision-making. And that means that when our church board, uh, committees, our pastoral team, uh, anybody who's in a position of leadership, anybody who's doing a ministry, when we're making decisions about what we're to do in the church, that we pray first. And that's it. Pray first. That's the value. Because God wants us to discern his will before we act. Now, for most, not I won't even say most of my Christian experience, but for a big part of my own Christian experience, um, I didn't pray and seek God's help the way I should have. Um, I think I just kind of assumed, well, God's given me a Bible. It's, it's all here. I don't need to pray. You know, I kind of I know it's pretty straightforward. Um, and I would usually just sort of take that for granted until I got really deeply in trouble. When, when there was a real terrible crisis in my life, that's when it was really easy. You know what I'm talking about. It was really easy then for me to drop to my knees and say, God, help me. But when things were kind of going well, you know, I felt confident. There's a psalm about that in the Bible, by the way. You know, when things, people say, how's it going? I say, oh man, everything is coming up roses. I feel great. You know, I can conquer the world. And you know, it's in those times when I feel that way, I get worried that I feel that way. Because then I think, okay, God's going to have to humble me. And there's times when he really has. Um, if things aren't going well, you know, but they're not terrible, but I'm a little confused, I'm not sure which way to go, you know what my tendency would be? I thought, well, I got to go find a book. Um, I got to go to a seminar, a workshop, a conference. I got to go find out what other churches are doing and see and maybe copy what they're doing. But did I pray? Not enough. And so what the Lord's been teaching me over the last several years, especially, is that I need to pray first. Can everybody just, it's okay if you say this, you got your mask on, just, just not too loud, but pray first. Can you just say that? Pray first. Maybe at home, just say that. Pray first when you're facing something big or small. Um, and so sometimes we get to a place where we're so busy doing God's work that we fail to pray because we're, we're too busy to pray. I found this on the internet, uh, just a picture of Mother Teresa. And uh, it just, you know, she says, if you're too busy to pray, you're just too busy. We need to learn how to pray first. Now, I think there's another reason why we sometimes don't pray. It's not just because we're too busy or overconfident. Part of it is we think, well, doing God's work is pretty straightforward. I mean, if you're sitting on a church board or committee and we're trying to make some decisions and we're thinking, okay, 
We don't really need to stop and pray. If you spent, say, 15 or 20 minutes in listening prayer and everybody quiets themselves and, you know, you know so it's a two-hour meeting and you're going to spend 20 or 30 minutes praying and being quiet before God to, and, and searching uh, his heart and letting him speak to you and you're thinking, boy, that's a real royal waste of time. We've got the book. We know what to do. We've got the Bible. We don't need to pray because we got the Bible. But I want to I want to challenge that cuz I think that's behind a lot of why we don't pray. I think sometimes we think we just have to get at her. We just got to get get to work. Because it's pretty straightforward in the Bible what we're to do. And so prayer maybe is just kind of a waste of time. Especially if we go too long, you know. But I want to say this. We are not bibliolaters. We do not worship the Bible. Now, I know I'm going to get emails. We do not worship the Scripture. Jesus said, John 5, 19, he said to the Pharisees who rejected him, he said, you search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life? Oh, no. It is these very Scriptures that speak of me, and yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. The scripture became a stumbling block for them. Because they thought, well, it's just all in the book. I just have to follow the rules in the book. And so prayer for us often becomes inconsequential for that reason. The Bible will not tell you everything you need to know to discern the will of God for today. Now again, I'm going to get an email about that. People say, I got the Bible. I don't need anything else. Well, really? Then why pray? Well, you can pray that you can understand the Bible, and that's actually a good thing. But here's the point. If you read the book of Acts, for instance, you will see that one day Philip, he was going about doing his ministry, and then it says that an angel of the Lord appeared and said, I want you to stop what you're doing, and I want you to go over here, I've got an assignment for you. He could not have gotten that assignment and heard the voice of God and obeyed it just by reading a Bible. He had to be aware of the presence of God and how God speaks in the moment. And that's what prayer is. If you're facing a tough decision in your life, um, you know, like buying a home, like a, a, you know, a big expenditure, like going into debt, or if it's about a relationship and you're thinking about marriage or divorce, would you pray first? Now, the Bible can give a lot of direction on that. It does. It's got a lot of wisdom. But sometimes we also need to pray and pray first and say, Lord, show me what to do, especially if the Bible doesn't make it abundantly clear. And here's the thing. Our God is a living God. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he lives today, and he speaks today. And that's why we're doing the Hearing God classes beginning February 25th. So how about you? Have you developed the habit, the practice of going to God in prayer, especially when you're making some big decisions in your life? Have you done that? Or do you just kind of do just common sense? but fail to take it to God in prayer. 
Maybe you're sitting here today and you're weighing a big decision about which university to go to or which program to go into or which house to buy. And, you know, maybe you're looking at one house that costs this much and another one that costs this much. Maybe you would pray and say, Lord, which one should I do? And the Lord might lead you to say, you know what? I don't want you to be house poor. I want you to get the lesser house. Give God a chance to speak to you. And that's what we need to do as a church. So when we're confused or in trouble or feeling afraid or we're discouraged, who do we turn to in those times? Ourselves? Just to the people around us? That's okay to a point. But do we pray first? Is our instinct to turn our eyes upon Jesus as Ryan and Steph led us in that song today? Or do we look to God as our instinct? Because this is something that should become a habit for us. When we're not sure what to do next, when we're not sure where to get our help that we need, just to say, God, I, I need you. Sure, you can use common sense and you can read a book and you can talk to other people to who can counsel you. But pray first. Pray first. Now, when I say pray first, it doesn't mean that prayer is the only thing that we do. You haven't done everything when you've prayed. Prayer is the first thing that we do. That's why it's pray first. I want this to be a core value of our church. And in an increasing way, that we would have a culture of prayer and that it really, it's where the rubber meets the road in our meetings board and committee meetings and uh, when the pastors meet together and in our life groups, our small groups, and that we pray, but we pray deeply. So today we're going to look at a fairly well-known story in the Old Testament. And uh, it's found in 2 Kings. So if you've got a Bible, uh, 2 Kings chapter 18, and it begins at verse 13. Now this is a fairly long story, so I'm just going to summarize it for you. Um, for the most part. But this is a story about King Hezekiah. Hezekiah was one of the good kings. You know, he was the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. And, uh, and he was a godly king. He, he was obedient to God and God blessed him and all this. Um, but now he's in trouble because the king of Assyria, now Assyria was like the world power of that day. It was like dominant. And Assyria was beginning, they were, you know, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria was beginning to flex his muscles against Hezekiah and Jerusalem. And so what happens, Sennacherib lays siege to Jerusalem. His army's right outside the, the walls and the gates of Jerusalem. And there's a big threat here. So he sends, Sennacherib sends his top military uh, commanders to threaten Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem. And there's this verbal confrontation. And, and so what happens is it's the typical bullying behavior and there's all these taunts and this mocking from Sennacherib's men. And they, they're going, so who's going to save you from us? You know, Egypt, you're going to go to Egypt? They're not going to help you. Uh, God, you think your God is going to save you? And they begin to mock Hezekiah. And then these military commanders begin to talk directly to the people because the people, they're in earshot and just saying, don't believe what King Hezekiah is saying to you when he says that your God will save you. No way. Don't believe him. And then he begins to uh, give them some terms of surrender. 
and says, you know, just surrender and we'll, we'll, we'll bring you back to our land and you'll be okay and you'll have a pretty good life. Um, and so then in chapter 18, verses 32 and 33 and then verse 35, now Sennacherib's men really begin to mock God. You know, we have defeated all these other nations. There is no God who is able to save them. Their gods could not save them. But what they didn't realize was now they're going to war against the one true God and against his king who was obedient. But they hear all this, uh, this taunting and this bullying and uh, the people are afraid and all of Hezekiah's officials are afraid, and they're in despair now. And so they uh, begin to put on burlap. It's kind of, they call it the sackcloth, you know, which is like when you're in despair. And uh, they go to the king, and they tell him everything that uh, all the threats coming from Sennacherib and his, his commanders. And this is what it says, and I want us here to look at Hezekiah's response. Okay? Now, you got to imagine yourself in this situation. How might you respond? Here's what Hezekiah does. Remember, he was a man of God, this king. It says in verse 1, chapter 19, When King Hezekiah heard the report, he tore his clothes and put on burlap and went into the temple of the Lord, and he sent Eliakim, the palace administrator, to uh, Shebna, the court secretary, and the leading priests, all dressed in burlap as a sign of mourning and distress, to the prophet Isaiah. So what does he do? The first thing he does is he goes into the temple of God, and he prays. And then he says, go to Isaiah, the prophet. Why? Because he needed to hear a word from God. Hezekiah's response when he didn't know what to do and he knew he couldn't just be self-reliant was to turn to God in prayer and then send for Isaiah. It's kind of interesting. Uh, in the Old Testament, when you wanted to get a word from God, you, you, you'd go to the prophet. Now, this is what it says in Amos chapter 3. Surely, the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. King Hezekiah knew that. He said, I need to know what God's saying about this. What am I supposed to do? So he, he, he turns to prayer. He turns to the prophet. So what's our response in times of trouble like that? And maybe you're facing a crisis right now in your life, or you're wondering what to do next. Maybe you're facing a conflict or a big decision. Do you seek the Lord? Do you pray first? Now, if you go to the New Testament, we see this in the life of Jesus. How many disciples did Jesus have? Can anybody tell me? How many disciples? Okay, it's a trick question, by the way. You, you were thinking 12. Actually, he had hundreds of disciples. But he only had 12 apostles whom he sent and trained. And it tells us in Luke chapter 6 that before he picked the 12 that he wanted from the crowd, it says he prayed through the night. Then he got up on the hill and he called those whom he wanted. It tells us very early in the morning 
Mark 1.35, very early in the morning, Jesus got up while it was still dark, went to a solitary place where he did what? He prayed. Now, he had the scripture. Why would he have to pray? He was the son of God. Why would Jesus have to pray? The son of God. And he knew the Torah. He knew the Psalms and the Proverbs. And he knew the scripture. Because he still needed to hear from his father who sent him. And Jesus says this. He says the son, referring to himself, can do nothing of his own initiative. He can only do what he sees the father doing. He says the words that I speak to you are not my own. They come from the father who sent me. Jesus did not think, I got this on his own. Even Jesus. The Apostle Paul, in Ephesians chapter 6, and there's other places where he calls for prayer, but in Ephesians 6, when he talks about the armor of God, at the end, when he finishes talking about putting on the armor of God, do you know what he says? He says, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests, and pray also for me that the Lord will open a door for the gospel, and so on. He's, and Paul constantly requests the prayers of the people over and over again. So here's the point. Prayer is an act of faith. I am going to risk saying this, that if you don't pray first, and if that's not your instinct, then you don't have faith in God because prayer is an act of faith prayer is how we express our faith in God and then combined with obedience when we pray we're saying to God God we can't do this on our own apart from you we can do nothing that's what Jesus said so before we're tempted to act on our own let's stop Everything, just like Hezekiah did, and pray first. And what did Isaiah tell Hezekiah? And I'll make this short, I'll summarize this. You can read it for yourself in 2 Kings 19. Basically, he t- told Hezekiah, God is going to make Sennacherib hear a rumor about something going on somewhere else, and Sennacherib is going to leave Jerusalem. He's going to go on his way, and he's never going to return. And so what Isaiah said was, the crisis will be averted. But before Sennacherib leaves Jerusalem and goes on his way, he writes a threatening letter. Um, How many of you have ever received a threatening letter? How many of you have ever gotten an email that's really, really like, I wish I didn't have to read that today? You know, it was kind of like that. Words on a page or on a screen can really, really scare us. And so what happened is, uh, Sennacherib says, I'll be back, you know. And he's basically saying, I'm going away now, but I'll be back. But he didn't know that he wasn't going to be back. And this is what it says 
in 2 Kings 19.14. It says, after Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it, he went, what does he do? What's his instinct? He went up to the Lord's temple and spread it out. It would have been a scroll. He spread it out before the Lord. And I could imagine that what he did is he spread it out and he probably got down on his knees like this and he prayed to God. He prayed first. And then it says in verses 15 and 16, Hezekiah said this prayer, O Lord God of Israel, you are enthroned between the mighty cherubim. You alone are God of all the kings of the Lord of the earth, and you alone created the heavens and the earth. Bend down, O Lord. Listen, open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to Sennacherib's words of defiance against the living God. And so here's what he's doing. In the first part of that prayer, he's affirming the sovereignty and the power of God. You alone, God, created the heavens of the earth. You've got this. And then he calls out to God to hear his prayer. But then he moves on from there. And then he says this in verses 17 to 19. It is true, Lord, that the kings of Assyria have destroyed all these other nations. And they've thrown the gods of these nations into the fire and burned them because they were just false gods. They were idols. He says... But of course the Assyrians could destroy them. They were not gods at all. And now, verse 19, Now, O Lord, our God, rescue us from his power. Then all the kingdoms of the earth will know that you alone, O Lord, are God. He acknowledges that the only reason Assyria was so successful was because they were fighting against nations who had false gods. He said, but God, you are our God. You are the God who created the heavens of the earth. You are sovereign. You are all-powerful. God, you've got this, and we put our trust in you. And he calls on God to rescue them. What happens next is the Lord answers his prayer. And then in verses 20 and 21, it says, Isaiah sent this message. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. And he's saying this to Hezekiah. I have heard your prayer about King Sennacherib of Assyria. Isn't that beautiful? I have heard your prayer. And the Lord has spoken this word against him. And basically what God does in the next several verses, verses 21 through 28, God rebukes King Sennacherib for his arrogance, for his hubris. And basically, in a sense, God says, Sennacherib, you don't know who you're messing with. Don't trifle with me. And so you see, Sennacherib's threats against God's people didn't catch the Lord by surprise. God said, Sennacherib, the fact that you came against my people was my doing. This is something I planned long ago for reasons that I know about. You didn't act alone, Sennacherib, and even your success came from me. The Lord tells him that all of this was done at his command. Sennacherib and Assyria were just an instrument in God's hand. And that's why it was so easy for Assyria to be victorious. Because God was even behind that. So finally the Lord tells Sennacherib that he's going to lead him back the way he came to Assyria. And that he's never going to return. And that's exactly what happened. Sennacherib made a big mistake. He insulted the living God. 
and compared our God to an idol. That was his fatal mistake. And now he was going to reap the consequences of his own hubris, his own arrogance. And it tells us that that night, so here's the thing. Hezekiah turns to God in prayer. He, he prayed first. And he wakes up in the morning and realizes that 185,000 of the Assyrian army died in the night without a battle. Hezekiah didn't have to lift a finger. God just did it. Do we pray first? Are we too busy to pray? Are we too self-confident to pray? To me, prayer says, I don't have this. God's got it. And so, for First Church, I think how this applies I, for us is that we would be a people who would learn to pray first as an instinct. That we do not look to ourselves. That we realize that the Holy Spirit lives in us and among us. And we say, Holy Spirit, we need a word from you. Would you guide us? And we would even stop and listen to his direction and do what he asks of us. The point of this sermon is God acts, God acts in response to prayer. God acts in response to prayer. So let's pray first. Prayer is an act of faith. And that's why next week I want to talk about our second core value, which is audacious faith. Let's be a people who have audacious faith. You know, if you know that God has spoken because you prayed, you've searched the word, you've searched the scriptures, and you've prayed, and God has spoken, you can have audacious faith. You can know that you can move forward with bold faith because you have heard from God. And so that'll be next week. So here's what I want us to do. And this is kind of the homework. Stop, look, and listen. Stop. When you're not sure what to do next, if you're afraid, if you're discouraged, if you're in despair, if you're just uncertain what to do, stop everything. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him, the Bible says. Stop. Then look. Look into the scripture for guidance. Prayerfully. Look around you and see the signs of what God might be doing to point you in the right direction. And then lastly, listen. Keep your ears inclined to his voice. But listening is active. Just listen and say, Lord, I prayed and I am listening all day long. Um, sometimes we think that we're working for God. We're not. In our ministries, we're not working for God. Ministry is God working through us. We're just the instruments. We're just the vessels. And if that's true, 
then we need to be as instruments in God's hand, be yielded to him and say, God, use me as you will. If we're vessels of God, we need to empty ourselves of ourselves so he can fill us and use us the way he wants. And that's what happens when we pray. So prayer is the posture of those who offer themselves to God and they say, Father, mold me, fill me, use me. It's your work. And so let's pray first. I want you to imagine what it would be like and what God might do if as a church, as a church board, committees, ministries, life groups, in everything that we do, our families, we would pray first. What might God do that isn't happening right now if we would just humble ourselves the way King Hezekiah did? The way the apostles did in the book of Acts. What you read in the book of Acts was because of prayer and the activity of the Holy Spirit. It was his work. What difference would it make? So let me just end with this and I want to pray. And then we're going to have a final song. I was in a meeting, a Zoom meeting, and Trent doesn't know I'm going to say this, but Trent McDowell, who led us in the prayer time, we were in a meeting, a Zoom meeting this week, and we were really struggling with some decisions. I mean, we were really struggling, and COVID has made things really complex, and, you know, financial, you know, what we perceive as humans as financial restrictions and all this kind of stuff. And we're just struggling, and we, we were in agreement, but we're struggling. We were confused. And as we're talking in this meeting, and I'm looking at the screen, I see Trent, and then right without warning, he goes, something like this, he goes, oh God, and we need your help. Father, we just, we just need your help. Please help us right now. Speak to it. Wow. I was so humbled when he did that. That's what I'm talking about. Where there was an instant recognition on his part. Boy, we don't have this. We don't know what we're doing. God help us. And so this is me giving him a shout out to say thank you, Trent. God bless you, brother. Let's bow our heads. Father, I want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to share this message. And Lord, for the example, and Hezekiah is just one of them, but for his example, in a time of crisis, what was his instinct? He prayed first, Father. He went to the temple. He, he went and sent his servants to go talk to the prophet Isaiah, because he needed a word from you. And you answered his prayer. God, help us to develop and create a culture of prayer in this church that we would know, Lord, that this is our act of faith. And may you do amazing things beyond our imaginations. Lord, we need you. Maybe you could even say that right now in your own heart, Lord, I need you. My family needs you. Our church and our ministries need you. We have to repent of our self-reliance, our hubris. 
and this idea that we've just got it. And Lord, tonight as we gather in our prayer summit, I pray that you would that you would manifest your presence as we pray to you our prayers of faith. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, and now a final song.